Welcome to Two Priests Talking, a podcast where two priests sit down to have a conversation about our current cultural moment and how we might engage with what is happening in the world around us as faithful Christians. Greetings, I'm Father Aaron Wright, the rector at Old North Abbey Anglican Church here in Knoxville, Tennessee. I am one of the two priests talking, and we're hoping to bring you conversations about reasonable faith in what seems to be less than reasonable times. I'm the second priest of two priests talking, Father Nick Hamilton, the associate rector here at Old North Abbey, and we are literally two priests talking. There's this idea that if, we're, that if we are in charge of our own destiny, that there's an issue. Well, and I think that that's true, right? If we are in charge of our own destiny, there is an issue. Yeah. But I think that that is particularly true if God doesn't exist. Yeah, and I like what he says this idea of um, it's false promise of harmony and happiness only increases internal anxiety and feelings of inadequacy. Right, because if you're supposed to be happy, like if the promise is that, right, if happiness is the goal of life and if happiness is the state where meaning is found, when you're not happy, then you're meaningless. Yeah, if precisely if if happiness is the very thing we're aiming at and you have a bad day or a bad week then your life your life lacks mark, right your your life lacks meaning your life lacks meaning we kind of just came into this midstream father Aaron and I have been talking a little bit about happiness in light of our last podcast and we've been looking at father Aaron was just reading a little bit from Chris Hedges what's it called the empire the of empire Illus- of illusion the Empire of Illusion, and one of the things that he unpacks there, I've not read the book, but is this illusion of happiness. Mm-hmm. And it was written in 2009, so it's uh, almost 12 years old, and I wonder how he would respond to today's culture that seems not to um, feel like pretending to be happy is quite as important. Right now we're pretty comfortable, like, just vomiting our emotions. or. Well, but you think about that, and it's real. I think... It's a result of that. And what I mean by that is I'm not happy, so therefore I must be a victim. Sure. Okay. There you go. You yeah. see what I'm saying? Like, I'm Who, not Whose happy. fault is it? Yeah. Whose fault is it that I'm not happy by gosh? Because I'm doing everything I can do to make myself happy, but I'm miserable. Hmm. Um, so I must therefore be a victim of something. Something's happened to me to where I can't be happy. Yeah. So my meaning is if we place, and we'll be talking about this, I think, in the podcast, if we talk about... You know, if we see that the meaning is to be happy, that ultimately our our meaning is found in how happy we can be. Right. If I have a bad day or a bad week, I'm not happy. I have no meaning. Right. And you see this in the nature of uh, career jumping, uh, the increase in career jumping just in general over the last several years is uh, has increased, Right. The millennial generation, Gen Z, I don't even know, Gen X, Y, Q, examine your zipper, um, switches jobs on average way more than our parents' generation or even your and my generation. Sure. Or relationships. 
or relationships. Yeah. Friend groups. I wonder what that looks like because if the happiness isn't found in these places, uh, then the thought process is I must be in the wrong place. Well, yeah. Let me even put that into a, a, a quote unquote religious setting is what's the, what's the stat with the, the fastest growing churches in America have a turnover rate, an annual turnover rate of 32%. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't so, know that. Yeah. So you take the, the, the top like 10% or whatever fastest growing churches in America have an annual turnover rate of like 32%, which huh. is they're bringing in a lot of people, but a lot of people leave because it doesn't fulfill them eventually. It's just a sort of a, a maybe those churches are sort of promoting something as being happy and coming away feeling good that day. Um, I don't know. I don't, I can't speak into that. I think you're onto something. I, I think the fact of the matter is if a sermon is convicting or if a pastor preaches something that's antithetical to what I've set up as my own understanding of truth, then I can find another church that's going to preach what I want to hear, tickle or, my ears, as Paul would say, yeah. and I'll leave. Or what if church is just boring one day? Church or is for, sometimes boring. Sometimes you do the, sometimes you do the same things that you always do, and um, but that but boring doesn't necessarily mean it's not important. Oh, absolutely. Not. And I think that's the thing where if happiness is that goal, right? Boredom and happiness don't typically go together. Yeah. And so I'd rather go to brunch with my friends on a Sunday because church has been kind of boring sure. lately. So I'm going to drink a couple of Bloody Marys and a mimosa. Well, I'll say this. Church is never... So we talked about this in one of our podcasts, the, the shift between boredom and boring. Right. Church is never boring. Sure. If, there's, if it's boring, then you're the issue because you're struggling with boredom. <laughs> uh, you sound like my mom. Only boring people get bored. That's true. My wife told me that I talk about my mom too much on this podcast, so now I've been, like, analyzing myself. By the way, who, who's your My wife? wife? Katie. Oh, Katie. She did just listen to last week's podcast last night, so she's all caught up. I think they're going to come on. Yeah, that's right. Are they? I yeah, haven't talked I to Katie I know Bruna's going to. She's going to come on and, like... Talk about... Take, she'll take it over. She's, she probably should. Um, so, hi, Bruna. Hi, Katie. Thanks for listening. Well... Let's do this, because we did jump in midstream, and I'm not sure where I'll edit this in and out at, but I like it. I think that in our last episode, we were talking about this first world, second world, third world framework, right? And alongside that, we were talking about the transference of meaning, right? Like, where's meaning found? And that second world framework states that meaning is found in finding what God in particular or something outside of ourselves something outside of ourselves finding what um, is best for a collective whole and working toward that thing right so within a Judeo-Christian framework for us as Anglicans we believe that meaning is found in the life death resurrection of Christ and our ability to live into the story of Jesus Christ and not our own story right? We place ourselves into his story rather than bringing Jesus into our story as kind of our buddy that we just drag along in our red, uh, red flyer wagon, right? And we talked some about how that third world framework has taken this transcendent meaning that God has created for all of humanity and made it imminent. He's placed it deep inside, or not even he, we've placed meaning deep inside ourselves, and we have to search for it. Well, let me say, I don't know how deep it is. 
<laughs> sure, sure. It could be very shallow. Yeah, I think it's actually we haven't we haven't placed meaning deep inside ourselves, probably at all. We've just tried to find it for ourselves. Sure. And without a framework beyond us, it's pretty shallow. It just becomes us. Right. Well, yeah. and, and let me read this quote from Truman that we kind of uh, read toward the end of our last one, just as a reminder. But Carl Truman in his book, um, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, writes, this is from page 70 if you're reading that book, it is important to understand that most of us do not think about the world in the way we do because we have reasoned from first principles to a comprehensive understanding of the cosmos. Rather, we generally operate on the basis of intuitions that we have often unconsciously absorbed from the culture around us. So to your point, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for meaning, but I've been told by culture that meaning is found in my own kind of personal happiness. Whoever, whoever I'm becoming is who I ought to become, and I know who I'm becoming by listening to myself. It's imminent. It's internal to me. It's not transcendent. It doesn't exist externally. Rather, I have to go inward. Whereas up until really the last maybe 150 years or so, it was always outside of you. Meaning was found in moving outside of yourself rather than inward. And I think that that's a pretty interesting shift, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a shift that is in a lot of ways, to use your word shallow, is making the depth of our culture quite shallow. Yeah. Um, well, I experienced this yesterday. I was at our favorite grocery store here in town. Oh, yes. Don't say the name because Kroger. I don't, don't want to get, no, it's not Kroger. I don't want to get canceled <laughs> or them to get canceled because I went there. Um, nobody listens to this anyways, except for Katie and Brenna and they'll, they'll still shop there. Um, but I was in line and somebody said to me uh, something about Jordan. Who's my brother? My yeah. brother. I have a great brother. My brother's awesome. Hope he's listening. Hi, he's Jordan. Not. Does he Jordan listen to our podcast? <laughs> Never. Never? And, um, no, he could care less. He's he's busy with life, and that's a good thing. But he uh, said, you know, something about your brother, and I just kind of laughed and giggled, and I said, I said that guy's so ridiculous, and I was just, it was just that's me just being affectionate with my brother. And the the guy always wants to have philosophical conversations with me. He says, well, do you think that you're ridiculous, Aaron? <laughs> and I said, I don't know if I'm ridiculous or not. Somebody else would have to tell me because I don't know myself well enough to know if I'm actually ridiculous or not. You're ridiculous. Well, hold on. See, okay, I, I take what you say and I, that's good. And he said, oh, come on. You know, it's ridiculous that you don't know yourself good enough. And I said, no, I said, this is actually the issue with humanity. Is that like, I can't tell you who I am mm. by myself. Yeah. I need people to say who I am, uh, in order to know who I am. I mean, and there was a gal who was working there. She's like, I got to write that down because I think that's true. And I said, oh, it is true. Like, if I was just an island, if I found everything within myself, all the meaning came from me, uh, I would have nothing. Right. Like, it has to come from outside of us. Like, people have to tell me who I am. I have learned more by people telling me right. who I am than by any sort of sense of self-discovery because even my self-discovery is based out of how I engage with other people. Right. <laughs> so, well, and I, I think that's exactly it. Even Paul, Paul says what? Well, we don't know the depths of our own selves, yeah, right? The spirit yeah. testifies sure. so within a little us. ancient wisdom there. Some Just ancient, throwing it out at the grocery store. Some ancient wisdom. Well, Truman says something similar. He says, you know, uh, he's speaking of culture more broadly. He says, culture is greater than prior to and formative of the individual. We learn who we are 
by learning how to conform ourselves to the purposes of the larger community to which we belong. Right. So culture has always functioned as a tool that helps us not only know who we are, but know who we are in relation to others. Sure. But in this third world framework, mm-hmm. where meaning is no longer something that's transcendent, mm-hmm. but imminent, culture doesn't function in that way. Mm-hmm. Culture now tells us, and I was watching this clip that a buddy of mine sent me, a Dr. Phil clip, right? Uh, and Matt Walsh was on it, who kind of typically stirs the pot, right? He's, he is he's a, a pot, pot stirrer. I don't actually, I find him a bit aggravating because he doesn't strike me as being very kind. But that being said, he's on Dr. Phil talking with a couple of trans individuals about transgenderism. <clears throat> and he was asking them the question, he was asked the question initially, you know, what's a woman? And Matt said, well, a woman is a grown biological female who has reproductive organs of a biological woman, mm-hmm. uh, a female. Mm-hmm. And he turned the question right back to these uh, trans individuals and asked them, what is a woman to you? And neither of them could say. They say, well, I can't say what a woman is because each individual has to determine what a woman is. Mm-hmm. But they still use the term for themselves as, or for other people. Right. As a, they were defending the rights of trans women, but they couldn't say what a woman was. Right. And I think we miss the ludicrousy of that because what we're saying is that you as an individual have to figure out everything about yourself. There are no external sources of meaning that help you define who you are. Mm-hmm. But we still use the external sources of meaning to try to define right what the internal meaning should be we don't realize we're doing it but we're right well we use the language that's always been used but now we use it in a different way and i understand how that's come about as a result of the postmodern movement and language as control and all that nonsense right mm-hmm. from derrida and foucault and the 70s kind of french philosophers sure. but there's this reality that language is not just about control but it's about meaning right so yeah, you can't say that something. You and you're, what you're saying is the difficulty I had. I, I saw the same. Did you see you that know? clip? Yeah, I showed I it to my thing. daughter, who was like, she was just flabbergasted. She's 13. She's flabbergasted by these two individuals who won't define what a woman is. But yet, we'll use the term "woman" to right. define who people are. Right. This is a trans woman, but what is a woman? Well, I can't say each individual has to define that. No, you're using the term, and if each individual has to define it, then you can't use the term as the term. Well, and it's a perfect illustration of third world versus second world frameworks. The third world wants to destroy what the second world um, has always affirmed, right? Which is there are actual, for instance, in this conversation that we're having right now, there are actual biological uh, genders. Male and female is a thing. Mm -hmm. We have chromosomes. Mm -hmm. Man and woman, the names of those genders have derived themselves from the individuals who have those chromosomes, right? right. Yeah. Uh, I yeah, I saw, yeah. Walsh is an interesting guy. And I, I don't have any disrespect. Or, I mean, I'm, no, not at all. Yeah, I mean, he's... I, he's, I appreciate his bravery. Oh, he's... Yeah, he's an interesting guy. But this is two priests talking. It is two priests talking. <laughs> right. And, and we're trying to move from last week into this week. Yeah, no, it's good. And this is a uh, uh, second... Uh, of a four to five part series on abortion. We're just going to go forever. And we are uh, hopefully bringing you up to speed on what we've been thinking through. 
uh, because one of the issues that we have seen as we started thinking about this about a month and a half ago or so is with abortion, it typically gets into these sticking points and everybody jumps to the actual abortion issue at the abortion issue. Right. And nobody's talking about all of the stuff around it that we would say has led to us having a culture whereby abortion is not only in some ways okayed, but is in some ways celebrated or is um, manipulated towards uh, abortion as maybe a really good option uh, for an individual and for society. So we want to tackle that issue. And we had said last week that nothing comes out of a vacuum. There's Mm -hmm. so many things that go into there being a culture of abortion. Right. Right. We, we, we ended in some ways by saying there are these cultural liturgies. And that quote I read just a moment or two ago about this idea that we generally operate on the basis of intuitions that we've unconsciously absorbed from culture is that liturgy, right? We don't exist in a vacuum. And the idea that we could potentially shape ourselves into a particular kind of being apart from everyone else around us, mm-hmm. or even some sense of transcendence, I, I think is ridiculous. Mm-hmm because we're products of a greater human community mm-hmm. and we're products of history. Correct. And this takes place on, I mean, even in the smallest, I went and got poke works today. Delicious. It's good. It's not Hawaiian poke, but it's East Tennessee poke works pretty good. I, I've never had Hawaiian poke. I have, and it's delicious. I, we went to Hawaii for our honeymoon, but I've not been back. Yeah, this is like a Chipotle version of poke it's like That's a little fair. assembly it's good yeah but even when you walk into a place like that you don't realize it but there's a culture it's mm. set up you begin to figure out where do i get in line how do i do these things how do i order what do i read what do i say we begin to identify things we begin to point at things and say i would like this i would like that there's a whole culture that moves you from inside the door there's colors there's kind of decorations it's trying to bring out something this is on just a small level of going into a place like to get poke. Sure. Right. Now imagine this like in people's homes or in churches or in schools yes. or in all of culture. So there is an American or a Western culture that is absolutely forming and shaping people. We can't get away from it. Mm-mm. We talked about this last week, but we have been guided and directed by our culture to believe or adhere to certain things. Right. Or to just even begin to feel a particular way. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the idea that we can dislocate ourselves from that reality, say that we're somehow autonomous mm-hmm. from shaping factors or from uh, historical factors is a little bit fascinating. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that's what this movement from the second world to the third world framework is saying. It's saying that meaning and purpose for your life is separate from all of that. It's internal to yourself and you have to seek it out. And we were talking, you and I, a little while ago, you you brought up Henry Nouwen's book, The Wounded Healer, where he talks uh, about this idea of atomic man. And in that chapter on atomic man, he talks is about it, this. A nuclear man. Nuclear, Sorry, yeah, no, not atomic. It's kind man. of the same thing. Yeah, yeah, nucle- nuclear man. Nuclear uh, man. 
he talks about this idea of historical dislocation. Mm -hmm. And at one point he writes, historical dislocation is a break in the sense of connection which men have long felt with the vital and nourishing symbol of their cultural tradition. Symbols revolving around family, idea systems, religion, and the life cycle in general. And if we're to look at some of the history of the United States, for instance, which we're going to do here, one of the things that we notice is in the past, and in particular really until kind of a few decades ago, uh, meaning was found in some of these cultural symbols, in particular family, maybe country, maybe religion. I think that was where meaning was found. And there's been this slow shift through some of these big historical events that have taken place over the last century or century and a half that have moved us away from meaning being found in those cultural symbols to this internal imminent framework where meaning is only found in me. You know, I have to find it myself. And you were going to spend some time unpacking a few of these things, and we'll see how it goes. Right. Yeah, so in a nutshell, as I begin to sort of move through this, <clears throat> think about the, if you have any sort of concept of history, um, think about the, the vast changes that take place in the 20th century. Yeah. My grandmother uh, always said that she went from horse and buggy to a man on the moon. <laughs> and, Can you imagine? I mean, that, and, and that's so quick. And in, 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 the, in the, just the, that short amount of space, she was born in 1916. Sure. You know, raised in Appalachia, horse and buggy, or you walk to like 1969, somebody being on the moon. Or even think about written word to where we're at now with computers and email. I mean, emails and, and, I mean, we were joking about how when we send each other a text, it just appears on another person's phone out of nowhere. Out like, of nowhere. I mean, crazy. Satellites, there's things. We, it's amazing. So the, the technological advancement, um, and this is one thing we'll talk about in this, is we've moved from a time of meaning, uh, like where meaning is important, to where the ultimate meaning is happiness. And as we follow this little trajectory, um, I think it'll be clear. That sounds really good, that coffee that you're pouring. Um, but he, No, I'm good. But he, here's the other interesting thing, too, is that what you see is you see with the advent of quick technological advancements, you see the lack of meaning go down. Or this, increase. No, the lack of meaning goes down okay. as, in, as increases in technology go up. We, it's more difficult for us to find meaning. Okay, so the lack of meaning increases as technological... I think so. Okay. Yeah. I think as, as technological advancements go way beyond our imagination... Meaning decreases. Meaning decreases. Okay. And yeah. we have to figure out that void between the two. So what I mean by that is, as we go through this little history thing, as the technology goes beyond our imagination for what it can be. Because right now, we're way behind it. Like technology is going so much faster than we can keep up as society, it's really hard to find meaning. Sure. We've always been ahead of it. We've always been able to sort of, why do we need this technology? And then sure. we create it because we're trying to figure out these things. But now it's just beyond it. It's just we're, we're making things to make things. Well, we're attempting to create technology that will create artificial intelligence, which is exactly what you're talking about. The idea Takes. of artificial intelligence 
is exactly that. It's beyond our capacity to imagine because we have yet to understand why we would. And it makes us dispensable as humans in some ways. Not saying that it does. I can't wait for the robot apocalypse. But do you see what I'm saying? No, totally. Everything is doing what we would normally do, and it's beyond us. Sure. Sure. The, you know, yeah. We're, uh, like even Zoom takes away the sort of human connection. All of these things that we're doing is taking away from the things that have ultimately given us meaning. E- so even this f- podcast is fascinating because you and I are talking face to face, but people are listening to this podcast and they don't see us face to face. But that's coming soon. <laughs> well, I don't Just know joking. if it's coming. Yeah, but, so. but I mean, but there's this reality that as a result, people don't see our faces. They mm-hmm. hear our tone and our inflection and hopefully... Most of the people who listen know us, but there's also this sense that for a bunch of the people who don't listen, who, who do listen and don't know us, um, there's, there's no whole, personal connection. There's no personal connection. As a result, it's a whole lot easier, for instance, for you and I to offend oh, sure. or um, upset people through what we say. They could be like, I don't know these guys. You know? Morons. Right. So I think in that void, and I think as we see this through the 20th century, that becomes this desire for happiness to fill in that void where meaning used to. Because hmm. I'm depressed. I mean, this is a depressing thing. Like, to to not to have things be always beyond us is incredibly depressing. We don't realize it is. Well, give, give us some examples of what you're talking about, like things being beyond us. Um, Even uh, you can start with this. Let's start with Facebook. Sure. How many friends do you have on Facebook? I don't know. Can you keep up with all of them? No, and I unfriend people regularly. Sorry. And they're always showing you their best life. Maybe not on Facebook, not. but Instagram for sure. Yeah, see, so yeah. everybody's, it's something that's beyond us. We don't have the comprehension. We talked a little bit about this with, well, in previous podcasts with just technology and social media and how it creates this sense of depression. And sure. So therefore, I, I have to find a way so my ultimate meaning must be happiness to engage and battle against this depression which means i just start chasing uh the thing i'll never catch sure well it becomes a vehicle for moving because it's moving faster than we are right well it becomes a vehicle for consumerism in that (laughs) the things that we see there whether it's in our friends hands or the things that they're doing travel for instance look at how much my friends are traveling traveling becomes a high value because we think that might give us meaning it might make us happy it might fill us with some joy Money and, doesn't and it might temporarily yeah and the memories might spark some joy when we remember them but it can also be tremendously difficult and so what it does is just for a lot of people that that chase builds up in them i have dear, dear friends who i would say are are adrenaline junkies hmm. of the next new adventure and it's just not been fulfilling it hasn't actually given them meaning it's a boost of temporary happiness but it's like a drug and so we chase it right now that's different from what i'm getting ready to talk about i'm talking about an overarching societal movement from meaning as being i need uh, there's something that's meaningful in this world that's outside of myself right to something that societally we begin to move into the individual's uh, desire to be happy, right? And to seek that on their own, and so just a very quick, you know. So, like I said, my grandmother went from horse and buggy to, to you know, man but, on the moon. That's yeah, crazy. And then to the internet. Yeah, she was. Yeah, she passed away in two thousand. The internet was around. She never would have. I mean, she had no concept of it. She's an Appalachian farming woman. I mean, she's mm-hmm. like what. Um, 
But, you know, we see this in the very beginning. You see this at the very beginning of the 20th century. You have World War One that takes place. World War One is a time when, um, because of a whole collection of treaties, you have, you know, an assassination, and then those treaties begin to hold themselves true, and the world finds itself in this big mess. Right. And before that, war... Um, and Chris Hedges has actually actually written another book called War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, which I think is an intriguing book. But we found people moved towards that war. There was a sense of meaning for the individual of sort of saying, okay, the whole world's coming together. We're going to have a war uh, because there's been some injustices. There was a sense of rogue countries at that time. I mean, they did this and they did this. There was a sense we found some kind of meaning in that. And that was... Not as big, of course, as World War II. We'll get to that in a second. But mm. as people went off to that war, what they realized very quickly is that the war of old that gave people a sense of chivalry and honor and things like that was not there anymore. Mm. It was a very different war. It was mechanized. Uh, we had sort of perfected killing at that point beyond what our imagination could think uh, we had no concept of like trench warfare and gassing and machine gun usage and shelling. Um, Even razor wire was a new invention. Like I believe recently. so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So mean, all of that stuff is going on. Yeah. I mean, there's people taking horses. Well, there's across horses fields at machine guns. Right. And it's World like War we didn't One, have a yeah. concept of what we had actually created. Right. The technology. That we created to kill had gone beyond our imagination and we were shocked yeah by it so then you have of course in the 30s uh you have the rise of 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 adolf hitler and you mm. have uh, the rise of uh, empire japan and you have mussolini and all of these characters who were trying to rally people around a sense of meaning um, and it and was it was primarily a, a nationalistic meaning, a very right? nationalistic yeah. meaning, right? Uh, patriotism, patriotism, this idea of we need to pull together. So if you do that, then you have to exclude some people who you don't want in that. And so of course we get that in in Nazism, which is a horrible thing, right? And but you what you see is is you see you know after Pearl Harbor you see America go okay. Yeah, they reached out and they touched us. They didn't yeah. keep this out in yeah, Europe. Yeah, so this is meaning. Know, in Asia. Now. So yeah. now we're going to go. Now this, we have a very clear understanding that there's a great evil in the world. Right. And again, it's interesting because it was patriotism for mm -hmm. us as well. It's like, hey, they mm -hmm. attacked Pearl Harbor because mm -hmm. we weren't going to go into this war. Right, like there, in in a lot of ways, we probably would have ended up one way or another. In some ways, we probably would have ended up, um, but. But the same, the same type of meaning that Japan or Germany or even, um, you know, Mussolini, and, uh, he's Italian, right? Yeah, Mussolini's Italian. Yeah. Benito. Benito. Um, were also used to rally the U.S. in this war, which right. is, which is kind of interesting to think yeah. about. And you have and the I, Soviet Union and you have Great Britain. And, I mean, all of these countries are now finding meaning in war. So war is a force that gives us meaning, right? Mm -hmm. But it wasn't the pursuit of happiness. We weren't going to war to make ourselves happy. No. No. We went because we... There was were, a sense of injustice. Right. A sense of injustice. There was a good sense of... Well, there was a deep sense of right and wrong, good right. and evil. Right. We had a way of dividing the world. Now, of course, they saw it the other way. You know? Sure. They would have seen themselves as good and us as evil. But those two forces of good and evil from something 
bigger than ourselves, at least how people are viewing it, uh, brought people a sense of meaning. Mm. And so we went to war. Right. But again, uh, to go back to where we kind of started some, there was this cultural drive that was giving meaning to this bigger picture, right? There was a culture that had shaped the people, the men of that greatest generation who went to war that made them self-sacrificial. They weren't just thinking about their own individual happiness, but they were willing to go and lay their lives down for something greater than themselves. Right. And I think, I think that's an important um, thing for us to remember as we continue through this, right? Mm -hmm. There's this sense of like, my meaning can be found even in death. As right. long as I'm giving myself for something bigger than me. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And then I think at the end of the war, you see the way you see it end, the way you see World War II end, sets in motion, I think, a major shift from meaning to happiness. Hmm. And it ends with, of course, um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. April 6th, April 8th, right? Two days apart. You have this, uh, this technology that has been beyond our imagination. Yeah. We are not prepared for it. We are not ready. We use it and it dumbfounds the world. At that moment in time, and it'll catch up to us in a little bit, we're excited. In some ways, the war's over. We celebrate, but there's a great evil that the world has seen that it has never seen before. Yeah. And I don't think we know what to do with it. And when you say there's a great evil that the world sees that's never been seen before, you're speaking in particular of nuclear destruction. Of nuclear destruction. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that that's the greatest evil we've ever seen. What I'm saying is, is in the setting, in the historical context, humanity puts their hands on their head and goes, we've never seen anything like this before. And I think it's important to name it as an evil. You know, like from our context as Americans, we can often say, well, it was necessary to win this war. But I think the fact of the matter is the loss of life on that scale, the loss of life on any scale is an evil. It's the result of evil's entrance into the world. So I appreciate I'm not saying, I'm not, so what I'm saying is, is it, it was viewed as it, you, you would have had people who would have said this was necessary. It was good for us to do it. I'm not even arguing that point. Sure. I'm saying from a collective stance, the world goes, we've never seen anything like this before. No, and I appreciate your candor. I liked that you used the word evil. Yeah, it's a great evil. And things are okay for a bit, right? The boys come home. They buy homes. They kids, make babies. All sorts kids, of kids. Kids. Booming. Tons of kids. Yeah. But then we soon realize that we're not the only one with that weapon. And we soon realize that there's now this thing called the Cold War. Mm-hmm. At this point, I think there's a major shift from meaning, right? Okay. Towards happiness. And I've been thinking about this. Yeah, why? Because if everything can be annihilated, and this was the great fear in the 50s and 60s and 70s and even in the 80s, the technology is way beyond our imagination. At any point in time, the world can descend and utterly be destroyed. Mm. It's hard to find meaning in that context. Okay. Right? So you might as well enjoy your time. You might as well eat, drink, and be married for tomorrow eat, drink, we die. Eat, drink, be married. Yeah. And there's a shift. And you even see this with, like, advertisements. Hmm. Right? We talked about this a little bit in previous things, but, like, even the show Mad Men. Hmm. Yeah. Right? It moves from advertisement being about something that is helpful or useful to, like, making you happy, giving you the life you want. And this is 
paired off with like capitalism and commercialism. Well, and it's so fascinating. I'm not recommending you watch that whole show, but if you watch that whole show, you see that exact movement from uh, Don Draper living in a family unit where meaning was found Mm -hmm. being a dad and a husband and a father to the very end of the show where he's alone at this commune meditating on this cliffside all by himself. He's lost his family, his wife, everything. And there's this descent from a transcendent meaning to an imminent meaning. And I I mean, I'm not recommending you watch the whole show. I did watch the whole show. Um, it was probably not worth my time, but that juxtaposition was pretty fascinating for me. Um, yeah. So I think that shift takes place. Sure. And it's not in one fell it's not in one fell swoop, but it's this gradual movement away from what gives us meaning to what makes us happy. Because the world is fragile, man. Yeah. Now, so then you we, we work into, as that's taking place. Kind of, we're in the midst of the Cold War years We're in the right Cold now. War, we're in you know, the 60s. You begin to have this, you have, you begin to have the sexual revolution, mm-hmm. which means that sex is, now, sex is now taken away from a position of meaning in marriage to like, it's something that is meant to be enjoyed. Yep. It's something that's meant to give you happiness. Right. And it's something that you're meant to experiment with. Right. Experiment, explore, just, l- just love, be yourself, man. live in love. Yeah, yeah, do it, man. You're good. Yeah. And so, well, yeah, I mean, that's even funny. We right? weren't alive then, so we don't really know. But. Speak for yourself. So then, <laughs> but you have this sexual revolution that takes place. 1960 is the advent of the, uh, the birth, birth control pill comes up. And so people are now free to quote unquote do what they want to do because there's no repercussions for my sexual behavior in some ways. Yeah, right? that's at least the thought. I'm not saying there's not. I'm saying this is the the general ideal around, uh, idea around it. And then in '68, you have the book uh, "The Population Bomb" comes out. Yeah, which all of that was going on, but the book "Population Bomb" in the in '68 starts telling us that, uh, whoa, you know, hey, the world's going to be way overpopulated. How many people were in the world in 68 compared to now even? I don't know. You can look it up if you want to. Yeah, keep going. There's this interesting thing that takes place where now we're overpopulated or we're going to be very soon. Now, I remember in 1995, I had a professor who was teaching human geography in my college class who was telling me this. I mean, he he was older, so he had come through that sort of generation of, of the population bomb, right? 3.6 billion. <laughs> 3.6 billion in 69. In 69 yeah. Right? So, yeah, we've like tripled that almost, right? So, and we've been okay. We're okay. Um, but let me... Yeah, we're almost at 8 billion. Uh, Gosh. And in the midst of all that too, you, you, you have in the population bomb, you have this idea that we're overpopulated. Yeah. Um, that the world can't maintain this. We also have the Vietnam War going on. Sure. The Vietnam War is the opposite of World the, War II. Of the exact opposite of World sure. War II. There's no meaning, right? Soldiers aren't given a sense of like what they're actually doing. There's a draft that calls people to go fight. We don't know why. People are running away to Canada. I mean, all it's, sorts of stuff. It's insane. So there's this movement of like, I've got a life is short. I've got to hold on to what I mean. We're getting overpopulated. Well, and there's um, already been a shift, I think, that's taken place where the patriotic kind of sense of meaning that comes from uh, being an American, right, uh, has left in some ways, right? We're still uh, patriotic enough that we don't want communism to take over. We've got the Red Scare. We've got all those other pieces that are kind of 
we're engaged with during this time as well. But I don't think the sense of being an American was quite as prominent in the Vietnam era as it had been previously. And I could be wrong. Well, Again, no, this is when I, you, no, absolutely. I was born in 82. Well, so I was born in, in, in 23. Um, I'm 99. <laughs> so, no, I think this is when you have the beginning of, of postmodern thought is in those 60s. You know, uh, authority is being questioned. The thing that's outside of us is being questioned. Nobody questioned the United States going to war in World War II. There was something beyond us, quote-unquote, beyond us, that we sort of submitted ourselves to and believed, okay, for the common good, this is a good thing. Sure. You, know, you don't get that in Vietnam. Sure. You know, at all. No, it was a small little country kind of in the middle of nowhere, and there was a question about why we would engage at all. Right. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. So you, you have that. You have the, you know. So, so we've got sexual revolution. We've got the advent of birth control. We've got... Vietnam, yeah, Vietnam, and in the midst of almost all of that, you get well. Then you you also get peak oil, which peak is oil. really interesting. Sure. And I'm not, and this people would be like, "Why are you talking about peak oil and abortion?" And well, it's because we viewed the world as having limited mm-hmm. resources for who we were becoming. Right, right. We 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 could not sustain more people on the planet. Right, and this is one of those moments where we actually had limited technology, but our imagination had gone beyond it. Hmm. <laughs> it's just interesting. It's, it's such a different thing. Um, we were thinking that we, we don't have we don't have the technology to keep this going, but our imaginations had gone beyond it because we lived in a time where everything could come crashing down at any moment. Sure. So you see the world in the seventies, sixties, and seventies start pulling back, right? We start pulling back from pulling back from. Um, we're fearful of expansion. Okay, gotcha. We're gotcha. fearful of things becoming too big all of those things and we are trying to limit ourselves at the same time we're trying to push our level of happiness to fill in those gaps where there's no meaning okay and so in 73 you get roe v wade yeah which doesn't happen in a vacuum no it happens with all of these historical sort of cultural pressures functioning as building blocks in a lot of ways definitely functioning as building blocks yeah the world's overpopulated Everything can end in any moment. And we still hear that today. That language is still here. Oh, sure. Climate change is our new. Climate change is our new one. Or even this idea of, is this the kind of world you would want to bring a child into? Hmm. That's still there. Sure. It hasn't changed. Yeah. Those societal pressures are still on us. Right? Now, in the 80s, we get a little reprieve. But that's the ultimate like seeking of happiness in some ways in the early 80s, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've made it. Uh, we, the world hasn't gotten overpopulated. Right. Uh, we haven't destroyed each other yet. We got we got out of Vietnam. It's like a roaring 20s. Right. Coming out of, you know, it really does function like a roaring 20s to uh, World War One in some ways, you know, with Vietnam being sort of meaningless. Yeah. You were going to say something. You were pointing at something. Oh, I was just thinking... Um... Yeah, I'm trying to process through. You, you're the history major. I, I was trying to remember. We had a rece- when, when did we have a recession in the 80s? Right. We didn't really have a recession in the 80s. We had a recession probably in the early 90s. That's one of the reasons Bush lost. We had that recession deep late in the 70s under Carter. Okay. Right? And that's when you had people that were lining up to get oil. You had the Iran hostage 
situation that takes place. You have the 76 Munich games. The world seems really strange. Yeah. Really strange. Was that when the hostages were taken in Munich? No, they weren't taken then. They were taken that in, was uh, I believe, 78 or 79. Okay. Munich was and it was the Olympic Games where the, uh, the Israeli... Um, yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, so all of that's... Ta- the world is just crazy and for the first time we're kind of starting to record everything everything's public knowledge Hmm. you know the news nighttime news is reporting everything the world seems volatile yeah very volatile yeah and so it's not the kind of world you would want to bring a kid into is the thought process and the narrative you're right that narrative continues today like i i remember even um chatting with some dear friends who like got pregnant during COVID and the fear of having a pregnancy during COVID and then having a baby in a hospital during COVID. Mm -hmm. There's like all these different pieces and I get it. Those feel like legitimate, um, very tangible fears because we didn't understand the illness or the disease that resulted from the virus and all these things. And so the, uh, the question of why would I want to bring a child into this world can feel legitimate and heavy. Sure. And, and I, I, I think I can understand that um, yeah. even today in some sense, right? But I think that's also because when we think about bringing a kid into the world, we think about their happiness. That's right. Absolutely. Um, we think about our own happiness too. Right. We think about what, what, what kind of happy, will they have a happy life in the world that we're leaving them, right? Right. right. And we, we do this with climate change, like you said. Sure. We do well, this I, and I even think about it, you know, we, I've taken my kids to the pool yesterday morning. They swim laps Mondays and Wednesdays. I, I'm, I'm the coach. It's impossible to coach your own kids, but I coach some other kids. They just get after it. Um, I love my kids. They are working hard. But on the way, sometimes I'll ask them if we can turn on doom and gloom. And by doom and gloom, I mean NPR. And mm. it was funny because yesterday I turned on NPR and the first word we heard was catastrophic. And Emily Grace was like, ah, doom and gloom and catastrophe, you know, and she's just making a joke. But it is true, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's the tenure and the tone of much of our media today. Yeah. Everything's horrible. Right. Right. So we're back in that same spot where it's like, so you can't trust the world around you. Right. Um, It doesn't seem to be held together by anything. There isn't transcendent meaning. Mm -hmm. So I have to figure this out on my own. Which I think is why so many people are depressed. I totally agree. Because they realize their limitation. Now, they'll seek happiness all day long. I think that shift takes place from meaning to happiness in the 20th century. Yeah. And and, and I I think, just to clarify, from a broader meaning, right, outside of myself to an individualized meaning, which ultimately always will boil down to my personal happiness. Right. So yeah, I, I like, we can say shift from meaning to happiness, but I want to clarify, we still need meaning as individuals. We've oh, just absolutely. reduced our meaning to, to the lowest common denominator, which I think is happiness. Right. No, so do me a favor, because yeah. I think this is important. You see this, would you look up Viktor Frankl, uh, meaning, uh, man's search for meaning? What year was that done? Because I think it's probably in the 60s. It could be, I'm just guessing, but you even see now and right his wounded healer, right, in that late 60s, early 70s slot. 46. Okay, 46. So this is, of course, right after the war, right? And he's uh, talking about surviving, finding, searching, searching, searching for meaning in the midst of all of the suffering Mm. and things along those lines that took place because he's a Jewish Holocaust. I believe he's a, a survivor. I mean, you think about that. 
you think about this issue of him trying to find meaning Hmm. because there was such a, there was such a clear sense of good and evil. Right. And there was something to fight for. Right. And I think you get that with now and too. What he's saying is, is the struggle now in the 60s and 70s is that we, he's, Victor Frankl's talking about meaning. Right. As somebody who, he, you're right, he was uh, himself a prisoner in a concentration right. camp. So he's looking for meaning. Yeah. In the midst of all that. Right. But when things start to become, when the technology pushes us on, pushes beyond our imagination and we are doing things that we've never been able to do before. Mm-hmm. We feel the sense of like, A, the world can collapse at any time, but I'm also capable of doing so many things. Right. It's, 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 I get, it's yeah. dislocating to your mind. It, 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 you, everything becomes an illusion. And I think that search for happiness, that search for meaning um, cannot be found in a world that's so discombobulated right. in some ways. So I search for happiness or right. I seek happiness, my own happiness, which we're using the word happiness a lot. But this is precisely, I think, where we are today. Sure. We've made that transition. Well, and I think I've been thinking about this in the context of church as well, because I think that part of what's difficult about this narrative that meaning is found more internally rather than externally is that church becomes a vehicle for happiness, which we were kind of, we started with this Mm -hmm. toward the beginning. And if church doesn't make me happy, then I leave church as opposed to the other way around, which would be to say, for instance, my baptismal vows give me meaning that I am to now live into. Right. And where my life begins to diverge from my baptismal vows, I should, you know, kind of put put pump the brakes and move back toward my baptismal vows. Right. And in that right in that this is who Christ says I am, I find joy and peace that's transcendent because I'm in touch with the only truly transcendent one, God himself, as opposed to what culture tells me, well, if your baptismal vows are confining and preventing you from finding happiness, or maybe you're not happy in this space, then maybe you ought to try something else out. Maybe you ought to try another source of meaning out. Maybe your baptismal vows should be eschewed and you should try out some different vows. And, you know, vows aren't meant to hold you to anything anyway. They're just kind of nice ideas. Right. And I think ultimately... That's why we're seeing this exodus, quote unquote, from the church, because people have decided that the things that might actually make them truly peaceful, content and joyful are what are preventing them from experiencing happiness. Yeah, it's so interesting because the churches that are seeking, I've I've seen this churches that are sort of seeking to just give people a happy experience are the ones that are ultimately sort of shrinking a bit. Like, it's a struggle because people are leaving. You get people in, 32% turnover rate. So how does this fit into abortion? Yeah, let's let's lay some of that framework, and then we'll kind of say goodbye for this one. Yeah. How does it fit into abortion? 
I was asking you. No, I'm sure. kidding. I mean, I um, have thoughts. Well, this is this is the narrative that I think has created. I'm part of it. I mean, we're just this is just we're just kind of boom, 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 boom through history to sort of sort of give exp- what I would call historical occurrences or moments in time that have helped to shape a world that would be much easily, much more easily pro-choice than pro-life, right? And I think it is that shift from meaning, which for all time, mind you, well, except for in some moments in (laughs) history that are collapsing moments in history, children and giving life to someone else and raising them up to become something good for the world and important in the world mm. gave people meaning. Yeah. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to do that in order to have meaning. No. No. I'm saying this is one of the things, one of the major things that has given people meaning. Yeah. And you see this, and people will say, well, what about people who can't have children? And I say, yeah, typically they will mourn that. Right? They mourn it. And yeah, you ha- have to grieve it, yeah. And they grieve it because it is something that they knew would help to give them some sense of meaning in life, right? It's the saddest thing ever. I mean, I've had friends who have not been able to have children, mm. and it grieves my heart because I know that they're not just doing it to make themselves happy. Sure. There's a deep sense of meaning in that. Mm-hmm. When you strip meaning from people, and the ultimate, quote-unquote, meaning becomes what makes me happy for me. What you do is you replace this sense of something outside of myself with this little thing of selfishness. Sure. Yeah, now, well, well, I'm going to obviously be most happy in, what, my career or right. in a place where I can make money so that I can travel or so that I can get the house that will make me happy, right. or what are just illustrations. So what was our, was our little thing on the board says? It's like life is now the best it's ever been, and we're still unhappy. The instances of depression and everything yeah. else are on the rise. Yeah. Now, this isn't to say, and this is what I want to be careful with. Sure. This isn't to say that women who are in situations where they think abortion is the best option are trying to sink something meaningless sure no right this is the struggle it's it's horrible well and it's part of why we want to be so cautious as we talk about this because oftentimes the issue of abortion is treated as something that people are not engaged with right and i can't imagine being a woman who finds herself in a place where she has to consider an abortion like i literally cannot imagine that as as a man i can try and empathize and put myself in that space and so, yes, we're not saying that for those women who find themselves in a place where they are considering an abortion or e- even have had an abortion, that they're nihilistic, right? Or that they're seeking meaninglessness. Right. Um, but what I am saying is that women who are in the process of making what a quote, quote unquote, we'll call a difficult decision. I put those in quotes. But it's, it is yeah. difficult. I'm not. Yeah. yeah, I'm being safe with my words. Who yeah. are in that situation where they need to make a quote-unquote difficult decision. The culture around them that has brought them to this point of mm-hmm. having to make a difficult decision yes. has promoted individual happiness yes. over meaning. Yes. And so therefore, 
that becomes the liturgy of the day. Mm -hmm. That my own personal happiness is something, if I get it, will give me meaning. Right. The difficulty is my seeking of own personal happiness actually does not give me meaning. It actually leads to my demise. Okay, unpack that. I'll always chase it. It's the thing you just said. If I get this house, if I get this thing, if I have this or that, there's always one more. I'll thing. be happy. Look, there's people who believe that if they have children, they will become happy. And those of us who are parents know that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, and I, and but my kids give me great meaning. And tremendous amounts of joy. And they tremendous really amounts of joy. What's the old saying? Uh, parenting is uh, all jo- it's, uh, it's all joy and no fun. Maybe. That <laughs> sounds about right. <laughs> but, but it's so true. My kids, they do make me happy, right? Sure. But moments, moments, moments of happiness. But there is yeah. a deep sense of me wanting to raise them up and give them out to the world to bless it and to be blessed by God. There's God's people and to, to be good functioning citizens right sure has nothing to do with just making me happy well and they not only do not only do i desire that for them but they help me become that as well absolutely in that i'm being formed into shaped into formed and shaped into someone who i would not be apart from their existence someone who has to think about others primarily Mm -hmm. rather than myself and that's not to say that those who don't have kids can't be formed and shaped into people who think primarily about others rather than themselves either but the culture is such that Mm -hmm. our narrative right now is your own personal happiness is tantamount to your life right Mm -hmm. like you do you live your best life now yolo right what's yolo you'll only live once bro oh wow um i didn't know that I had a buddy who said, Walt, in response, we actually live twice, you know, talking about the resurrection, which I liked, you know, um, shout out to David Teton. But uh, you're right. You're right. It, it becomes our undoing because we can't ever, happiness is fleeting. Happiness isn't something that's permanent. Happiness is momentary. It isn't something that's tangible at all times. Happiness isn't necessarily evil, but if it becomes the thing that I seek at all times in all spaces in my life, then I won't be formed into a human who's capable of helping other people in life. Because I will, in a lot of ways, be looking at myself first and foremost at all times. Right. And that just has never ended well. Sure. For anybody. Sure. Don Draper is a perfect example you were talking about. Yeah. Right? He just, yeah. His life falls apart. Yeah. And yet he's celebrated somehow. That nihilistic, um, almost kind of uh, anti-hero yeah. is something that we like right now because we have elevated the character who chooses personal happiness over family. We, we sure. have all sorts of stories about this. Sure. The, the dad who just can't live with his... Uh, wife anymore and his kids anymore because he's actually truly in love with this woman who's over here or the woman who does the same thing. And I think that that's a fascinating example of this um, descent, really, into happiness as our ultimate rather than living towards something larger and bigger than ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is why we believe that children are a gift. Right. Um, 
no matter what kind of world they're born into. Right. No matter what the, the society and culture around them looks like, children are a gift because they help elevate all of us I think, into a life that is more meaningful. Yeah, if we allow children to shape us and form us with their lives, right? Like, I don't get to do the same things I used to do before I had kids. Sure. You know? Yeah. Um, I get to do some of it. Sure. And sometimes it's like, hey, hon, can I, you know, sure. Yeah. But Can I go fishing? But they've made me somebody, I think they have, they've made me better. Right. Like yeah. they've, they've done something to me that is more beyond just my happiness. Right. They've made something more of me. Right. I think this is how God intends it um, for us to shape and form children and for them to shape and form our lives. We need that responsibility. Well, it's fascinating. I do think that the raising of children shapes and forms our lives, but our culture right now celebrates the opposite in some ways, rather than children helping kind of shape and form our lives through the raising of them, our culture celebrates this youthful childlikeness that's uh, antithetical to being shaped and formed into a a fully functioning adult. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like your best life is when you can live in perpetual teenage, early 20s kind of joy and angst and carefree uh, wild living, right? Right. That's the rise of the van life crowd, which I must admit that in some ways I envy, or the rise in the travel all the time crowd, or life is best when you're on vacation. Um, any, any of that is, is a fascinating departure from the way that our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation lived, where there was a sense of as we grow in wisdom and stature and as we age, that maturity is a gift that helps us be more rooted and more stable. Correct. And more uh, able to help the world around us. Yeah. I yeah. would agree with that. Yeah. Ugh. So where do we go from here? Yeah. I mean, this is interesting. I mean, I think we get into a little bit of the nuts and bolts of it, right? I mean, what we're trying to do in these first two is to talk about the world in which abortion has been able to thrive. Yep. And we're at the point now to where we we abort about 800,000 babies a year. In the United States. In the United States alone, right? That is something that should really be telling. Why? Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> what? That many? Well, we've right. lamented the loss of 800,000 lives in the U.S. over the course of the last two years from COVID. Right. But we nationally do not lament the loss of 800,000 lives from abortion. And, mm, and I think right. we'll, we'll get into that later because I think, you know, there are some uh, legitimate criticisms as of the of the pro-life movement being only pro-life for the unborn. Right. And we, we can, we can unpack some of that, yeah. but yeah, w- this is how we've ended up where we are. And I think the next episode will be one more piece of that. Uh, as we kind of unpack this new Gnosticism and the shift from our physicality, uh, our physical bodies actually being important, rather mm-hmm. than just our minds and the way that technology has really impacted us in that realm as well, mm-hmm. which should hopefully help us be ready to talk about the actual evil that is abortion. Yeah.
Well, heavy. Good conversation, though. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Well, hopefully, hopefully you all listening enjoy it as well. Yeah. Um, I'm actually going to pray our prayer for the fourth Sunday of Epiphany, which is where we're at, um, because it fits. Then I'll let you send us out with a blessing. Does that sound good? It sounds like a plan to me. Oh God, you know that we are set in the midst of many grave dangers, and because of the frailty of our nature, we cannot always stand upright. Grant that your strength and protection may support us in all dangers and carry us through every temptation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. See you soon. Peace. Peace. Peace.